I've been feeling like a pinball machine of emotions these past few days. In this metaphor to be specific, I am the pinball itself and the pinball machine has been life. It all started Monday. Every so often deadlines for some of my jobs I have coalesce around a single weekend and as that weekend approaches I start to feel the stress knowing what little flexibility I usually have on a weekend to relax won't come to fruition because I need those hours. I started to feel it on Monday when my alarm went off. I spent the morning getting a little work done for a class I teach and then started to prep for the day at work, making coffee, packaging lunch, etc. I wasn't feeling great already, and I hadn't even left the house yet, but then I tasted a bite of food that turned me around. It was that simple. Some leftovers packaged for me that my wife brought home from a party I couldn't attend the day before. This one bite was a tiny moment of ecstasy and turned my morning around. I actually smiled for a moment. Then I headed out the door, ready to bring the dog to daycare. Just as I was getting into the car, I hear music echoing throughout the garage. When I looked, I see this guy carrying a skateboard and playing music through his phone. Music through his phone. It's 7.15 in the morning. A skateboard. It's February in Madison, Wisconsin. Ugh. I accidentally make eye contact with him and he yells from 40 feet away, Hey! I fake smile and wave, then close the car door. What's your name? Oh my god, he's still talking. Do you live here? Ugh. I met Greg and Phil. They have to work even though today is a holiday. It was President's Day. This wiped away that bit of ecstasy I felt eating the delicious food upstairs in my apartment. I get in my car way more irritated than I needed to be. Skateboard guy may have been a bad reader of body language and social cues, but he was nice. Sure, aggressively nice, but he wasn't trying to piss me off, yet I was pissed off. And it had me thinking about how this is not the way I interact with people I encounter in public. I think back to years ago, before the very first episode of the subtext, when somebody started talking to me out of the blue in a coffee shop, and I surrendered to the conversation and ended up inspired and moved by this person. Where was that version of me right now? The pinball machine carried on. I'm dropping my dog off at daycare, an activity done a thousand times, but on this day I see a couple dropping their puppy off for the first time. I could see the fear in the dog's face and worry in theirs. I wanted to hug them and tell them it was going to be okay. I've been there. This empathy crashed directly into my irritation from Skateboard Guy. I get back in the car and head to work, clicking on a poetry podcast called Poetry Unbound. Bing, 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 emotional pinball machine bounces me from stress to ecstasy to irritation to empathy and now an immense feeling of joy and inspiration, listening to the host read and discuss a poem by Somaj Sharif titled, Self-Care. Self-Care. Oh, the irony. I'm now getting closer to work. The stress and joy and aggravation and ecstasy are smashing together like atoms in a particle accelerator. I thought I was going to have a panic attack. I don't have time for a panic attack, so I put on music to aid my transition from this place to work. But the song that came on is called Stop Making This Hurt and is perfectly situated at the intersection of agony and ecstasy, a place I'm trying to escape. I felt overwhelmed. I parked my car, tried to slow my heart rate and start the day. I didn't have time for this. I have work to do and then work after work and I think I'm forgetting how to breathe through my feelings and is this what it means to be a human being? I want to be a donkey or, or a giraffe. Do giraffes feel emotions? Do donkeys play pinball? <sighs> I turn the music off. I close my eyes, take three deep breaths and sip my coffee. It's time to step out of the car and away from the pinball machine. I open the door and walk away. But there are quarters jingling in my pocket. Hello, Monday. 
Hello, new week. This is the Subtext Podcast, and my name is Brian James Polak. This month, I share a long-awaited conversation with the great Kate Tarker. For new listeners, if you like Playwright Podcasts like this one, follow us on the socials and subscribe to the Subtext wherever you get your other podcasts. And if you're so inclined, please rate and review, because I'm told that helps us reach more people. Kate Tarker. I was so excited to talk to Kate. As you'll hear us discuss, we met several years ago, and I liked her from the start. We haven't been in each other's orbits over the years, but I've been following her career from afar, and I've wanted to talk to her one-on-one for several years now. Kate is a playwright currently based out of New York and Rhode Island who grew up bilingually in Germany. She writes counterculture plays for smart, curious audiences about the big topics that divide us, including language, embodied power dynamics, and national identity. Produced plays include Montag, Thunderbodies, Dionysus Was Such a Nice Man, and Laura and the Sea. She is the recipient of a Jerome Fellowship, the Vineyard's Paula Vogel Playwriting Award, and Theater Master's Visionary Playwright Award. Kate received her BA from Reed College and her MFA from Yale School of Drama. We talk about both of those during our chat, which you will hear now. This conversation was recorded over Zoom in February of 2023. Do you realize that um, we first met like almost... Don't say the number of years, but yes, continue. Almost almost a lot of years ago. Yes, I didn't realize that. And... uh, we have never talked or seen each other in all of the years since then. And uh, yet, however, I've still managed to sort of like track you in a lot of ways, like not in a weird obsessive, okay, maybe weird, <laughs> not yeah. an obsessive way, you know, whatever. Uh, I've just, because, because we met uh, at a time uh, that was particularly important to me personally in my in my development. Like it was, at, it was at at this infamous Kennedy Center playwriting intensive that I've talked to some other folks about. I talked to Gary Garrison about it, and I talked to Callie Kimball about it. Um, and I've always talked about how this was such an important moment in my life because. I was want. I came in wanting to be a playwright, and I exited a playwright in this, and it happened in this two week period. Yeah, I mean, yes, and I remember you. So I, I, it sounds weird to say I remember you, and you're right here in front of me. And I, yeah, I, I feel like I feel like we've just. I feel like whoever was in the room at that time, where we've all just sort of continued to be in a room together in a weird way, you know. Um, but yeah, for me, that was, it was all, it was the same thing. It was when I officially, um, it was the junior year, my junior year of college and that summer between junior and senior year. And I remember sitting on the balcony of the Kennedy center and journaling. And I just had this moment where I said, you know what, I think this is what I want to do. I'm going to be a playwright. And that, yeah, that was the moment I made that decision that I've so f- had to live with ever since. <laughs> it's so funny. It's yeah. really, yeah. I, it, ha- it happened for me the moment early on, like the first day where Gary made everybody declare themselves a writer. And mm-hmm. and for me, that was the first time I ever said out loud, I am a writer. And mm-hmm. it, felt, it felt weird to say it because it, it felt like, and I wonder if you felt the same way. If to me, it felt like a thing that needed to be earned, that could be declared. It needed to be earned, 
and I done jack shit at that point. So <laughs> how, how did I earn the right to declare myself a writer, you know? Interesting. Yeah, that's not, yeah, for me, it was very different. For me, it was um, Marcia Norman uh, hearing her talk and the just sort of actually the theatricality of how she spoke to us. I'm sure that must be really vivid in your in your memory as well. Um, and and it was this sort of combined feeling of um, she she made a really strong pitch for the life of the playwright. Um, and I think she called the dramatist skilled the best club in town. And <laughs> I just got this feeling of I want to continue being around people like this and. And I believe you. I believe you. This sounds like a fun life. This sounds like something big enough that I could devote decades to it. And um, and it also seems hard. Like it was the it was the opposite. It wasn't like a feeling of this is going to be easy or this is who I am. I was just like this seems like a big enough challenge. Yeah, I remember. I remember Ken Ludwig saying something uh, crucial in this time period. He talked about how when he was starting out, he had some office job and he got up at 4.30 or five in the morning every day to write. And I was sitting there going, wow, like that's, that's dedication. But also it was like in this process of demystifying the life of, of a playwright. And then hearing this playwright who you know, managed to create a career for himself, talking about how he started. And he started by uh, controlling what he could control, which was the morning hours, right? You get to decide how early you wake up. And uh, that stayed with me, but it didn't take effect for many years for me. Uh, it, was, it wasn't until maybe like three years later where I was just like, eh, like picking and choosing my moments to sit down and write for a couple hours here and there. And, um, and I was like, I got to get serious. It was, it was like the year before I went to grad school um, where I was like, I got to get serious. And I started to develop like a practice where I would get up early and it was Ken, and it was Ken Ludwig in my head talking about how he was like, I'd get up at four 30 or five. So five o'clock for me was like implanted in my head as the time, because if I did that, then I could control my writing practice because nobody's awake, nothing's happening, nobody's pinging you, there's nothing. And it's, you can just do what you can control what you can control. And so uh, that is where my practice, came. like I was able to develop a discipline and it came from the, that one thing that he said in that, in that two week time period. Is that, so is that, I, yeah, I was listening to another episode where you're talking about your morning practice um and losing touch with it during the pandemic is that is that where you're at right now is that your no virtual? uh I have fallen out of practice and I'm I'm really like em not embarrassed but I do feel guilty about it because my uh because I've always had to maintain a day job to pay bills um up until up until the day job I have now it's been very it's been very easy for me to handle those those morning hours and I don't have a problem with the five, 5 a.m. wake up. Um, I'm just used to it. But what's happened is like, I have to be at work at a specific time now. And uh, I have like, si I have that full-time job and I've got side jobs I'm teaching. And I'm in this time period where I feel overwhelmed with work, like bill paying, money making work that it's such a struggle to to do that morning now because then I am unable to do the things that I am like obligated to do and it's really bothering me it's coming to I think it's coming to an end like there's another life change in in the next few months where um those hours might be freed up again but um it's really been bad and it's really upsetting like I really like I miss that control and, uh, and I feel simultaneously like I'm in a, a really creative place. Like I feel very creative. I'm thinking a lot about things and I'm, uh, uh, I've been reading poetry a lot and it's been super inspiring to me. And I, so I, all this stuff is like building up and I'm just like anxious to, to, to get it out. Um, so yeah, 
short answer is I've lost the morning hours, but it's for sure temporary. Like I'm, I'm coming back to it soon. Okay. But also it sounds to me like you're fine and that's normal and healthy and not something you need to beat yourself about up about at all. And I think there are periods of time when other things are more important than writing um, because writing is just one part of a life. Yeah. And, and I think the, you know, the writer and you, you can trust that he, she, it, they is not going to go away and will come back and misses you and loves you. And, <laughs> and also maybe that maybe it's time to switch up your process too. Maybe, you know, like maybe, maybe it's not mornings anymore. It might. Yeah, it might not be. And I, and, uh, and who knows when, um, when I come back around to really creating another sort of like discipline for myself, yeah. how that, who knows how that'll manifest. And I'm open to it being however it needs to be. How does it work? Like, like, how do you approach it? Do you keep regular writing hours? Do you just write when you feel an impulse? Um, I'm more of a, I'm more of a binge writer and I need to get sort of, I need to really steep in a world and build momentum that way and especially if especially if I'm starting out a new project I need I just need a lot of space and daydreamy time and um obsessiveness I just need so much space to be totally obsessed mm. and I think I just really I do feel like I put all <laughs> I put all of my life force into a play you know like I really do so I can't I can't do it all the time I can't constantly mm. be putting my whole self into some into one thing you know so for me there is more of a um well at this point you know it's taken me a long time to get there but I'm I'm at peace with that now I'm at peace with the fact that I'm not always it's not always output and sometimes also it's like input sometimes I just need to be absorbing um and also other times like I've definitely for me learned um financial insecurity makes writing so hard for me and I've spent so much time uh being financially insecure and um you know really just being fully committed to pursuing playwriting sometimes in an unhealthy way and um you know I think for me the pandemic was a bit of a wake-up call to put it mildly <laughs> understatement of the century but you know it was a real wake-up call of um yeah, think be think more about how you're doing this and think about the artfulness of your whole life and um yeah, other ways other ways to cultivate your energy and um sustainability is my my word of the year. Do you do that? Choose a choose a word of the year? No, I word don't. Okay, yeah. So my word this year is sustainable. So I'm always it's just a word to keep coming back to, to think about like, is how I'm living sustainable for me? Is it sustainable financially? Is it sustainable? Um, how am I contributing to sustainability for other people? Um, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. So uh, talk about that. Like where, how, where are you from? A yeah, sustainable, where am I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I am, I just started, um, well, I, okay. Where should I, where should I start with now? I mean, I just had a play up in New York, um, which was at Soho Rep. It's called Montag. And um, that was really important to me. And it was, you know, one of those plays that went through COVID postponements, but it also, um, I know, got better because of that. Like it got deeper and, and, richer and more urgent and so in a weird way I'm grateful for that but also so grateful that I also got the you know the um the payoff of actually seeing it up and it was also it was the first time I felt like I had um enough I don't know what was it I just like felt like I belonged enough mm. um to actually like ask for what I needed in every possible way and um, to have, you know, shape the room I needed and um, find the people I needed. And it was a really great process. And I think the thing we made reflected that. And um, I think I, I feel like I really needed that win. <laughs> and right now I'm still, um, 
carrying that one with me mm-hmm. and um the you know and what it means to me is this sort of knowledge of like a a better way is possible you know like you can do this you can do this well you can do this while taking care of people um and that's the only way I want to work <laughs> also so how did that what do you what do you mean by by taking care of people like what were you doing that was different I mean I think um so the director is Dustin Wells and he has a practice that I've also adopted as my own practice in teaching of of doing these really um really deep check-ins with people and uh this sort of like um inviting everybody in their full self into the room and it feels very non-hierarchical um even though people still have their clearly defined roles um but there's just a sense of the community the community is the most important thing i think you know like uh, put it remembering that and um and just i don't yeah but just also just giving people space to be going through whatever they're going through you know it's not like you stop um <laughs> you're it's not like you have one life outside of this room that we create together and then another self in that room you know there's mm-hmm. that's not real <laughs> and so just like just creating more um room for uh your life and your art making i think to 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 blend into each other to like be in conversation with each other i think like the opposite of severance basically yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and um yeah. And I, you know, I mean, like what I think theater really is as a practice, it's, um, it's holy days, right. Or holidays. It's like, we're creating holidays. We're creating, um, these moments for people to gather and, uh, see what's sacred about living and, um, live with a, like an altered state of consciousness briefly. Um, but it has to be brief because it's just a holy day. And then we have to go back to our other days, but, um, it's like this book there was like bonus holidays right because we have we have our you know religious and cultural holidays at certain points in the year that always come back but then you can also seek out additional holidays by going to the theater or like you know not just the theater but um to um i'm currently my day job that i just started right now is at um, newport classical so you can also go to classical music like there's so many ways to find this but that we need we really the we need <laughs> I'm creating something and the purpose of it is to build community. That is what it is for, you know? And I think, so I think the making of it, community has to be central to it. And then that needs, and yeah, I'm just, yeah. Do you think before this experience, you, you weren't consciously thinking about this community building and, and using your own agency as a playwright to contribute to that? Like did that, was there a shift? I think I just didn't believe in my, I didn't feel like I had as much agency. I, I didn't, I felt like I had to prove myself still. And I, you know, I feel like uh, when you're first starting out, you get a lot of sort of conditional offers and maybe this continues to be true, but maybe I'll feel more comfortable saying no to them, you know, where people say you need to work with this director or, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what are all the things there's just like, I mean, I did have one conditional offer that I said no to that was about um, they wanted the theater wanted permission to uh, change something about my script if they felt it didn't work. And, I, and no, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I think I just um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you can't ever get rid of the feeling of, you know, wanting to prove yourself and be taken seriously, I'm sure that's in me always in all of us right always but but I have less of it and um it's replaced with yeah something else okay so connect this back to sustainability there's so many ways one is I am currently working full-time day job I have health insurance um (laughs) uh, I need that right now that feels Mm. very good that's freeing me up um to be more creative I am um, not adjunct teaching, which I've been doing a bunch of. I I feel like universities are a very exploitative, unhealthy place right now. And um, 
I am tired of that, but I am leading my own classes online where, which feels really um, uh, nourishing to me and to the communities that I'm getting to form um, in these, these online rooms. So um, yeah, and also I'm teaching exactly what I want and um, not grading everybody, which I think is actually, I think grading is a really unhealthy process that teaches people to trust themselves less. So, so that's an example. Um, I am in my day job. I am currently working um, <laughs> in marketing and development, uh, and I'm learning more about how an arts nonprofit works and it is just get becomes sustainable and learning how I actually think that um classical music and experimental theater are very similar in that they're sort of like niche interests that a lot of people might find like don't they don't know how to access it fully so I'm learning how to communicate what I need to communicate to get people excited about this thing and um and then to also like, you know, I'm just like, it's like a lab for me where I'm asking all these questions about like, how do I build community? How do I get people here? How do I make the whole experience something that is nourishing and transformative for people? And and I, I'm like, I have to say, I'm pretty good at it so far. Um, they just had their highest selling concert <laughs> of their um, of their year round chamber series program. I got a bunch more young people to come. So I really, you know, like all of this is stuff that feels really um, important to me to be learning right now and to develop real skills in um, because, okay, you know, here's another just like longstanding frustration. I think um, arts marketing, <laughs> theater marketing, it could be, it's, it's like so deprioritized. Um, the, the that aspect uh, you know like that administrator is not paid enough we're not hiring like people who know enough about this to do it you know okay so anyway I have hey, so no, many, listen so I'm with, boxes I'm I'm with you the weeks after we met all those years ago I moved to Los Angeles and got a job at a theater and became the marketing person at that theater and held that job for years I didn't have any marketing experience getting that job. I my what I demonstrated was an ability to sell myself, uh, and and I got I got hired. So I like I was I was basically marketing new plays. It was a theater that produced new plays, and uh, I learned. It took me about two years to to realize the the inherent troubles in this and the struggles and and almost the impossible nature of trying to sell plays written by people nobody's heard of uh, about things nobody's ever heard of and and how do you make that work and um it was a really really hard job and like you were just saying you do it uh on a shoestring too it's just like do this impossible job and here do it with 19 cents yeah make, make magic right also we need to cultivate a younger audience too on top of it mm -hmm. right yeah it's impossible. Yeah, the shoestring budget thing and just yeah, just devaluing it just devalue because it's not I mean, the word marketing, I think it's that's the that's the thing that maybe people get hung up on or they think, oh, you can do all this stuff for free on social media or what have you and, and yeah, you can build word of mouth there. And that's really important. And that actually was really important for Montag um, was we had really great social media word of mouth that got people to come. Um, but, but it's also, it's just communication. It's just, um, it's, it's education and communication and it, we don't live in a world where everybody grows up going to the theater. You know, we don't live, that's not this country. <laughs> that's not this culture. And so we have to get over ourselves, I think more and, and, you know, tell, like explain to people like what the benefits of this are and what they will get from this and, Anyway, that's that's where that's one of the places my mind my, my mind is at right now. Where how did you get connected to theater in the first place? Like we're not you're right. I agree with you. We're not a culture that is that is uh, raised to support theater uh, in any broad way. I don't mean no pun intended. Uh, so like, how did it happen for you? 
Yeah. I mean, I, well, so I went to, um, well, okay. Backtrack, backtrack. I grew up in Germany. My family moved there when I was five, right after the Berlin wall came down. And originally my family's from Philly. Um, but yeah, my, my parents and I, we moved when I was very little and to a very small town in Germany. Um, so also I don't need to now think, ah, yes, she grew up going to see all the crazy theater in Berlin. That is absolutely <laughs> not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, no, um, I mean, I grew up by myself, um, playing make-believe. Um, but, uh, when my parents were getting divorced or about to get divorced rather. Um, and I was a, um, very sarcastic, uh, unhappy person, uh, in German high school at the Leibniz gymnasium. Uh, we had this family reunion. I have a, a huge Italian American family spread out all over the U S and, uh, we had this family reunion in Interlochen, Michigan, and they sent out, um, brochures about things in the area and it included they, in, they included brochure for the Interlochen Arts Academy which is uh, a boarding arts high school and um my mom suggested it to me and I, I was horrified at first actually I was like what you're trying to get rid of me why um <laughs> but then <laughs> but then I got really excited and I went as a visual artist um, and put together a portfolio and got in and it was, um, I was there 10th through 12th grade and, um, it was, oh, it, you know, that was so formative and incredible. And, um, and I thought I was going to be a painter and, um, <laughs> okay. The story just, okay. The story is just going to keep getting weirder. So, um, <laughs> I'm I, here for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I didn't, um, I didn't get into college. I didn't get into college. I got into art school, but not college. And, um, that like my self image was of like a smart person who was going to go to college and become a painter for some reason. That was what I, that was, what, it was an identity thing. That was what I thought I was going to do. And so, um, I, uh, ended up <laughs> like the, uh, was, I had like all the entrepreneurial spirit and none of the practical knowledge and, um, got a grant, like applied for a grant to go, um, to like combine my biggest, um, artistic interest at the time, which was painting with my biggest sort of like intellectual fascination at the time, which was animal intelligence and I got a grant to go take a year off and spend a year painting chimpanzees in the Republic of Congo. Um, yeah, uh, it was like such a great idea that I totally <laughs> not have the capacity or, you know, like worldliness to pull off, but it didn't matter. Um, I went and learned so much. My paints got lost. <laughs> I shipped all my supplies. They got lost for six months while I was there. And, um, and during that period of time, you know, I truly, I, you know, going back to what you're saying about like identifying as an artist for the first time, like I was so all in on painting. Like that just was my identity. I spent all my time in high school doing that painting and printmaking and drawing and it was, uh, you know, it was like, it felt like losing an arm or something to not be able to do that while I was there suddenly. And um, also it was a very intense world. I had just um, waltzed myself into, um, you know, colonialist attitudes and like intense conflicts between the French people who ran the chimpanzee sanctuary and uh, the Congolese people who were employed there and then this like multinational team of volunteers who were doing research um, just intense um, power struggles and in like it was the, I learned so much about language as an instrument of power and control and also witnessed things that um, were traumatic and uh, that I felt I had no power over. And so were you, were you on your own? Did you have people that you, you could I was, talk so to? I, was, I went to a, I volunteered at a, um, 
chimpanzee sanctuary that was rehabilitating chimpanzees and re-releasing them into the wild. So as the what I had agreed to was that I'd be spending part of my time helping them with their research and part of my time working on my independent project. Mm -hmm. And I ended up only working on the research, um, but also keeping this really um, life-saving journal where I would write down dialogue verbatim um, mm. because I needed to process it. I needed to process the things that people were saying and what they meant and the power that it had. And that like all the, <laughs> all the like creative energy that I couldn't put into painting because I just didn't have my supplies went into that journal and into listening and listening to people speak. And it was, so it was just this event <laughs> that transformed me from the inside out. And um, I came out of that knowing that um, I wanted to tell stories in a different way or, well, even there we go, that I wanted to tell stories, right? That mm. I wanted to tell stories. I think that's what I, that happened. And that painting wasn't how I wanted to do that primarily. And, um, and from there, I knew I had one play that I needed to write. And then it was several years later at the Kennedy Center where that turned into, I want to be a playwright. Um, why was it, why? Oh, yeah. Why a play? Why a play? Yeah. Yeah, I think that was just what was accessible to me. I Like I ended up going to read college. There was no film department. There was no, but also, you know what? Also here, this is also, I think why, because at Interlochen, I was exposed to um so many artists from different disciplines and we had a really strong they had a really strong theater department and a like an incredible music program and so you know I was there doing my paintings <clears throat> and drawings and prints but also just absorbing what everyone else was doing and ha had seen some like incredible performances and incredible place but also maybe destiny <laughs> you know like truly like maybe also like this um like weirdly my um admissions essay to Interlochen uh was about um Oscar Wilde uh which in retrospect fascinating you know and 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 also I I sort of like as I mentioned I played make-believe as a kid and a lot um and not too long ago i we digitized all our family videos and i i was just shocked actually to rewatch them and realize oh my god i was just making theater all the time mm -hmm. like i didn't that's not what i thought i was doing mm -hmm. um, but i was i was like so into like being characters or like pretending to do a uh like a interview show um for the camera and um, like interviewing my baby brother who couldn't speak yet, like comedically and like narrating things. And so, um, so yeah, I also think, I think just destiny. Mm. <laughs> so, so if, if it was destiny, do you think if your painting materials arrived, uh, you still would have found it, found the playwriting? Oh my God. What would have happened? I don't know. There's no way to know. Right. I don't know. I mean, I guess so. Yeah, I think so. Like it was something inside you that needed a trigger. But I, yeah, but also, you know, destiny is the events of your life too, right? So. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like certain events just kind of change you and then, yeah. So you wrote this play, so this, so this, writing in your journal became a play mm -hmm. and you decided I'm going to apply for this work, this two week intensive workshop thing. Like, no, no, that, that wasn't how it went. Um, no, that's, my, that's my version of your story. Just so yeah. I'm yeah. <laughs> um, no, I had this amazing teacher. Craig Clinton, who, you know, mentored other amazing playwrights too, like Gordon Dahlquist and um, Anne Washburn, like long before my time at Reed. But um, he, I think he just saw, so he saw something in me that I didn't see at the time. And, and he 
he just basically made it happen. He just, he just was like, Kate, you need to go to this thing. And I found funding for you. Okay. I found a donor who's going to cover the costs. Okay. And you're going apply. So, so that's how I ended up there. <laughs> wow. I, you know, for anybody who listens to, to this, to the subtext on, on the regular hears that, uh, I think the most common way a playwright has become a playwright has been that key teacher at the right time in the writer's life, like seeing them. Yeah. Like, like that teacher saw you and was like, ah, I know yeah. who Kate, I know who Kate is. Kate doesn't realize it yet. And, yeah, then, and is, then pushing the right button. It's such an incredible gift. Yeah. I'm so grateful. Craig, thank you. Mm, yeah, I think it's amazing. So, so what happened? So we talked, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, we were talking about that Kennedy Center experience, like, uh, what, what triggered, like, you talked about Marsha Norman, and uh, her, we had a, I think we had like a whole day with Marsha, if I remember correctly, talking to us, um, like, would you what brought it all together for you like where you had that moment on the uh outside on the ledge yeah i mean <laughs> um i guess you know i can just point to the things that still feel the most emotional to me from that memory but um i do yeah i do think well for me as well i just really didn't you know i'd gone to college in Portland, Oregon. And I didn't have this feeling of, oh, a playwright is a, a, a career. <laughs> a playwright is a thing people do still. Um, yeah, I didn't have that understanding until we went to this two-week intensive where we met so many playwrights and who, you know, who provided so many different models of, of what this life could be. And, um, but yeah, it was Marsha who, had this um intensity to her that she brought <laughs> into the room and um and it included it included her saying things like her sort of like you know she had this like this journalistic um aspect of her mind as well where do you I mean do you remember this like she she um asked us little bits about our lives and asked some, someone had made a big life change from, I think, um, I think she had been a, maybe a cellist performing musician and then turned from that to writing. And then she's, and then Marcia just sort of whipped around at all of us and said, there's a story there. Mm. Her mm. job to like to hone in on that story. And that, I don't know that, that, that was a moment for me. And um, perhaps also because I too had, you know, made, had, I knew, I knew from personal experience that when someone makes a big life change like that, there is a whole story there. Um, so that really hit home for me and and engaged my curiosity. And I was I was just excited by, I was just excited by how this way of being in the world that she was modeling, you know, of of like pay attention, ask questions, be incredibly curious, um, don't settle for what what's presented to you on a surface level about other people, and um and then you know yeah so she was like sort of like modeling a, a like a deeper more intense way of paying attention and I found that really exciting um I found it super inspiring as well because I was in the midst like in those two weeks I was in the midst of a major life change I had spent years prior to that experience with corporate jobs like years I was climbing corporate ladders that I didn't care about I was accidentally falling up all the time and just hated that life. And uh, I had quit my job, went to this intensive um, with, and then moved to Los Angeles with the person I was with at the time to start life over. And I was, uh, I don't know, 32, right? Like I was, I was in that period where you're already supposed to be like, building your wealth and buying your first house and doing all that shit. And I was just like, that's just not who I am. And so hearing things like what you just described, like what uh, Marsha Norman said was like, I don't know, it just made me feel like I was doing the right thing. Or at least I wasn't wrong in, in wanting 
to start a new life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess I have a, I have an additional answer to your question before of, you know, like what would have happened if, mm. um, <laughs> if your paints had arrived, uh, I don't paint that much now. Um, but I still, I'm still a painter mm. and, um, and I guess, I mean, maybe this is part of what I was also saying about practice and, you know, trying to tell you to not be so hard on yourself. If there's something else you're doing, right, you're still a, you, mm. it's a lens, like it's a lens. It's a way of being in the world. It's a way of perceiving. And so I have, I have the gift of a painter's way of perceiving. Um, and I have the gift of a playwright's way of listening. And those are with me always, you know, mm. whether it's like coalescing into a, a project at any given moment or whether you're seeing a play of mine at any given moment I carry that way of moving through the world both those ways of moving through the world and they make my life so much better and so much more interesting and so much richer and um yeah <laughs> do you think anybody had a specific influence on you in the way that you write in the the types of plays that you write Oh, I mean, everybody, I feel, you know, like every great writer, I just feel like anyone who, yeah, I just feel like you absorb, um, uh, yeah, that's my answer. Everybody, everybody good. I mean, um, I do think, I, I do think I really love a lot of British playwrights, I have to say, I think, um, and maybe this is because it's, you know, it's so fascinating to me, these things, but like, I do think I have a, a, a part, at least I have a partly American sensibility and a partly European sensibility. And I, I, um, there's something I can identify with in, um, European and British playwriting, you know, like that just feels like very truthful, um, to me. So, and also I just, you know, they have a, a longer history of playwriting than we do just due to the, you know, the shortness of our, our uh, national existence. Um, uh, well, I, I say we uh, Native American performance traditions extend much further back, but mm -hmm. that's not the tradition I'm working in. Um, so yeah, so I think I've learned a lot from re from reading a lot of British playwrights, and um, like, yeah, and then and then you know I do think Soho Rep has been really formative for me. It's the theater that's done the only theater that has done my plays in New York so far and they've done two of them and they um I just think there's like a ethos to their work of of just like radical curiosity and questioning of what theater can be and who it can be for and and like and an interest in in just you know what I was just describing and like perception and in not just sort of like um telling a story uh, because stories are cool or whatever, but because, because like it can, um, it can, ch it can change you so fun fundamentally and enrich your life so fundamentally if you like, ha like have the courage to, um, to expand how you see the world. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I had similar experiences going to Europe and seeing a lot of European theater, particularly Eastern European theater, uh, where it is less um, literary than British or American playwriting. Uh, and it's been really inspiring to me. And, and my question comes from uh, about your, about the influences because I'm thinking about this presently about who I am as a writer and how I got to be like the way I write right now. And because I feel like uh, my work has been very, narrative driven, straightforward, uh, very approachable uh, stories. And I think, I think I am more experimental in my impulses, but I hadn't realized it. Um, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Until recent years, like, because it's been like the culmination of these experiences in Europe and um, learning about and seeing more experimental work where I, I'm like, oh, I think if I was exposed to this first early on in my first formative years, this might be where 
I am today, but I'm not today. Like, I think there's an experiment, more of an experimental theater artist trying to get out of me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's an exciting feeling. You know, it actually connects back to like what I, what I was describing at the beginning of this conversation about how I feel like I'm in a very creative period in my life and I'm just seeking the, the time um, to create, to get it out. This is part of it. Like I'm having all of this self-realization now, you know, years into my, my playwriting career, years after having completed grad school, I'm starting to be like, oh, uh, and I don't even think it's an either or where uh, I'm, I'm fully experimental in my approach or yeah. I'm, you know, I, but I just think, I think I understand, I, I just see I just, I'm just seeing this differently in a way that I don't think I, I don't have language to put to it right now, but I feel it in a way that I never have in the past. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's also, I mean, it's, it's just like so exciting to, to give your, yourself permission to keep changing as a writer. And I think that can be really hard to do because there's, um, you know, I just like everything about <laughs> um, branding and capitalism. It's, it's sort of like yeah, mm-hmm. trying, trying to push against that. Um, but I, but I, yeah, I think I don't know. I'm, I'm so excited to hear that for you. It's, it is funny for me too, though, where I, I like, you know, as I said, I didn't grow up seeing cool, weird stuff in uh Berlin I still haven't actually I've never seen a flame but like I I just haven't had that experience yet um which that'll be fascinating when I do but um but I also just think like there's having grown up abroad um and having had to like assimilate into America as a 15 year old girl who was like originally from here but um no longer properly from here, you know, um, who like sort of passed <laughs> as American, but um, was full of uh, totally different experiences. Um, it's just also so interesting to me how like these forms that we make, like realism or the happy ending or um, or like a more, I don't know, a more challenging experimental way of looking, like they, they can also be tied to just like, just the ethos of like the day-to-day life of your culture, you know, um, and not even what you're watching or being exposed to. Like, I think there's something, <sighs> or like, okay, here's a, here's a totally, totally different example, but I really love Commedia dell'arte and clown. And um, that also, Chris Bays, what Chris Bays also was at, um, clown teacher Chris Bays was at that two week thing um at the Kennedy Center and that also was like uh for me uh, oh my god um this lights me up I need to follow this and then he was also um at Yale School of Drama where I ended up going to grad school and I um took his classes and just like that was that was really important to me learning all of that and um and there (laughs) there are a bunch of reasons for that but um one of them I was so not aware of until um like years after I'd been obsessed with Commedia, which is that, um, and it was just like, I was at a dinner with a bunch of my family and I'm from a big Italian American family and uh, they can be like loud and crude and rude and um, so Commedia, so Commedia. And it was just this insane moment of like, oh my God, this whole time, I was just drawn to this art form because it's my family, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because it's so deeply like that. It's genetic in the Italian. It's genetic. (laughs) It's like, but it's, but I've like been watching it and growing, I've grown up with Mm. it, even though I'd never seen it, you know, like, and it's like theatrical form. And so, so that's also really, you know, just fascinating to me the way, how we grow up and what that what the cultures of our family cultures and our um school cultures and all that how those also just like shape uh what we love and what we're able to what we're able to love and and perceive and how we end up writing Mm -hmm. did you have an idea at some point of what 
the life of a playwright or what your life as a playwright uh, could be or was going to be? Hmm. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, um, wait, ask me that question a couple more, a couple different ways. Give me, I want two yeah, more questions. Like, like, sure, sure. Did, so, so like, there's a moment, there are, there are several moments that we've talked about. There's the moment where you're outside on the deck at the Kennedy Center where you're like, this is it. This is what I want to do. Um, so at that point, or let's say um, later, you apply, get in to Yale and you start attending Yale, like at these or and then you graduate a couple of years later, like at these moments, were you thinking about what life as a playwright was going to be? Yeah. And, I, you know, and I'm still and I'm still thinking about it. I always feel like I'm thinking about it more now. I hate this phrase more now than ever, but um, you're in marketing. Oh God, that's the worst <laughs> phrase though. If, hey, if anyone is in marketing and listening to this podcast, never use that phrase. Uh, <laughs> okay, but uh, yeah, I um, I guess I'll say it this way. That question, that question feels very central to me now, and I think I had a lot of assumptions early on, uh, uh that were, um. That were wrong and or just not <laughs> i don't know or that were i don't do want to say unrealistic yeah maybe i think that i had a lot of um oh man like I, for a long time i really just felt like i think i had this definition of like su success or something that was just like not like i don't know like not having to pay my bills any other way right and mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I kind of did that actually for a long time because that, see, that was so important to me, um, <laughs> because that was my definition of what the, what, what this, like doing this looked like, right. Um, was like, it's, it's all you do. And, um, but that was really hard and, um, uh, you know the the freelance like a purely freelance life is so unpredictable um you like trying to just get paid on time uh you know like you'll be like you're you're in the black with your budgeting on paper but in practice like wh like whoever currently owes you some like tiny but essential bit of money is not sending it to you and you have to keep chasing them and uh um yeah. And, and so, yeah, so I'd like committed to this, this complete, complete freelancer's life. And um, yeah. And, and I'm having a moment right now where I'm like, okay, that is not, <laughs> that's not working for me anymore. Um, you know, my, partly my needs have changed also, but um, I think it's a, it's a, an erroneous model that I'm using, you know, like an erroneous definition of, of um what this life needs to look like you know or like what um success in this life needs to look like and so and I also think it comes from partly from the fact that like <laughs> success is such a it's it obscures so much you know like when you learn about other people's um successes uh or like you know, their prize winning plays or, or if, if you're just like, I know the name Edward Albee, you know, unless mm -hmm. you do a ton of digging, you're not going to also know, oh, okay. Like he went and taught in Texas for many years or, oh, like there were all these years where no one wanted to do his plays in New York, or there were all these years where people just thought he was over, you know, like that there's, <laughs> there's so much, even in the most successful life, there's so much I kind of hate the word failure, but like, yeah, so many like misses or um, challenges, you know, you're, it's still a life. It's, it's still like a complete life with all the yin and yang of that, with all the like ups and downs of that. And sometimes they're really big, sometimes really big like ups or highs are coexisting or living in very rapid succession um, right next to really intense lows, you know? So I think... Yeah, I guess I, I think I would, I would also say like, you know, as a young, 
younger person, I just have this erroneous idea of what, what a life was, period, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, I didn't know. Um, yeah, I had these like overly simplified models. Um, and so my, I think my models are continuing to grow and, uh, like, and change and shift and we'll, and I'm going to keep letting them change and shift. I do, I do feel like this is sort of like a period of transition for me, but, um, yeah, I don't know. My, my friend, my really, really dear friend, Philip Howes, <laughs> you recently called me the Frank O'Hara of Newport, Rhode Island. Did I say that's where I'm living? That's where I'm living right now. And um, because, uh, you know, Frank O'Hara had a job, like he worked uh, in visual art as a curator. And, you know, like his lunch poems are called his lunch poems because he wrote them on his lunch break. And um, like the more, you know, sort of like the, the nitty gritty detail history of your your hero's lives I think the more you can like build a better model for yourself for like how you're gonna do this and um yeah just recognize that it's complex <laughs> it's complex and and I think I the one thing I was right about at the beginning was um this is a, a hard and worthy <laughs> challenge you know that's gonna keep changing over like I could I could totally spend decades um learning the craft of this uh you know developing the I don't know just like living this living this it's a life it's a life mm -hmm. yeah oh Maria Irene Fornes has a quote and uh I had need to I need to get it right I use it with one of the classes I teach uh as like an introductory to playwriting and uh she says god I hope I get this right uh playwriting isn't a way to make a living, but it's a way to have a life or build. No, it's not have. It's like build a life. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I feel. Like it's because I I try to disassociate, which is this is impossible. But I try to separate capitalism from how I see playwriting, as far as like how I judge myself as an artist. I don't. Uh, think of it in a capitalistic perspective. Am I earning money through my art? Um, I am more like, am I fulfilling my life as an artist? And that's how I've come to start measuring success personally. And, but like you, like you alluded to, it's a moving target um, and it's constantly evolving and and we should like I like I very much like your perspective constantly evolving and allowing the evolution to occur and who knows what you'll be thinking or feeling in a in a few years yeah yeah and I also I mean right now I think I'm in a place of feeling <laughs> I, I you know I'm 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 surprised I've gotten to this um because it's so far from where I started but to this feeling of like my whole life is my art, you know, mm -hmm. and um, and am I also learning? Am I changing from the plays I'm writing? You know, like, am I um, am I giving myself more courage um to live and to create more holy days, <laughs> um, and to not only, yeah, just to to not put too much of that um, to to spread to spread my creative life force around more, I guess. Yeah. So in this conversation, you talked about, you know, your big Italian family, Philly roots, mm -hmm. living in Germany, going to private school in Michigan, college yeah. in Portland, you live in Rhode <laughs> Island. Uh, where is home for you? That's a hard one for me. <laughs> that one's hard. And um uh yeah, I'll just tell you all the answers that surface. <laughs> One answer is New York. Um, it's where my dearest friends are. Um there and I've lived the longest there as an adult, I think seven or eight years, um, in two different periods of my life. But then it's also um wherever I am. <laughs> And it's also um, all my past homes, every every place I've ever lived. And it's such a pleasure 
when I get the chance to revisit one of those places. Um, and also it's such a pleasure. I, I, I really want to take my husband to see my small town in Germany and haven't gotten to do that yet, but I can't wait, you know? Um, and yeah. And because my life has been so all over, I do find it, it feels really healing when I am able to have moments like that, like, um, like getting married, you know, talking about like community gathering. Um, I think my, my wedding felt like was very like, like it was in many ways, it felt like a production to me. It felt like the third production that I had that year. Um, in a, in a, not, I mean that in the least capitalist way possible, but in that I was like crafting, you know, working to craft an event and to bring a community together, together. And, um, you know, I think a thing that people don't talk about <laughs> so much when they talk about like weddings, um, and what that ceremony is, uh, is that it's, I guess, or at least I, it hit me so hard once I realized that this was what it was, was it's like, one of the few moments in your life where people from all these different moments and all these different places come together, you know, um, and coexist in like real shared space. So like my, my um, the family friend from Japan and my friends from high school in Michigan and um, my uh, dear friends from grad school in New Haven. And just like, I, it was so healing for me to have all of those people not all of them, obviously. <laughs> I couldn't afford to bring everybody, but um, to have those worlds um, connecting and to have people meeting each other, and um, and I I do think that is also one of the the reasons, like one of the deep deep reasons I write um, and need to write is this um, this like searching for a, for wholeness, you know, um, from all those from all those different pieces and experiences and. Um, glimpses into ways of living, you know? Thank you, Kate. Isn't she the absolute best? Find her work and read it. See it if it's being produced near you. She's just a flat-out fantastic writer. If you want to learn from Kate, she teaches an online playwriting class from time to time. You can find out more about her, her work, and her classes at her website, katetarker.com. The subtext is hosted and produced by me. KJ Jarbo is the associate producer. Thanks as always to Rob Weiner-Kent, editor-in-chief of American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. The theme song for the subtext is by International Pen Pal. Music from this episode is by Circus Marcus. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is God Will Do the Rest by Nicholas Pillipil. I love to write and watch and read multi-generational plays. And this is a, a fan, just fantastic multi-generational play. I very much would like to see it. Mm -hmm.